Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to today's edition of the show. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're talking today about a subject, wow, that has caused so much tragedy throughout history. When I mention the term historical trauma, we're really are speaking about a dimension of abuse. And abuse is not something limited historically. It is happening on an ongoing basis, and it is not confined to any single cultural group. It is something, though, that there is great news about, great hope for those who have been the victims of abuse and for preventing abuse in the future. To guide us on this very important topic is someone who is, well, recognized internationally for her work in this field. Her name is Sarah McDougall. Sarah, it is great to have you with us. Thank you, Dr. DeRose. It's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Sarah, I am as well. You and I have had this privilege of rubbing shoulders over the years, and I know many of our listeners have heard you. You've spoken throughout the country, throughout the world. You're the author of numerous books. Tell us just a little bit about you and what you do for those who are getting acquainted with you for the first time. All right. Well, you know, it, <laughs> it's uh, um, it's a little bit interesting because I spend most of my time at home homeschooling my kids. I am a mother and a wife. I am a survivor of different forms of abuse, both um, sexual and domestic violence and um, different things that have given me a huge passion for this topic to pursue the education to be able to help others. Um, I am an introvert, uh, unlike a lot of people might guess, because I, I do enjoy speaking and I have a passion for people, but I also really like spending time at home with my family. So, you know, I, uh, it, it feels a little odd to be introduced to the way that you do, but it is an honor to be able to work with others. Well, I'm glad that even though you're an introvert, you were able to push yourself out of that comfort zone and join <laughs> us on today's show. Hey, I would do this any day over groups of hundreds or thousands of people, so okay. I'm good. This is all good. I'm glad to be here. I won't tell you how many people will be listening into the interview today, so we're, we're safe. I am happy they're here. We're all good. Okay, Sarah, well, let's talk a little bit about your training. You mentioned getting additional training. Tell us just a little bit about what that looked like. Well, you know, I after finishing college and then finishing grad school, um, I d discovered that I had a passion for working with women. As a woman, I, I loved helping and supporting other women. And then I went through a number of things in my own life that increased my understanding and empathy for women going through abusive situations. And sometimes we sit and we wonder, oh, why did that happen to me? Why me, God? Why, why did this happen? Um, for me, it was like, you know what? You can bemoan the things that you've experienced or you can find purpose in them and allow these things to motivate you 
to be a resource for other people. So I got certified as a coach and specialized in abuse recovery coaching and uh, continued studying and learning and seeking out mentorship and now um, do my best to give back to women who have been wounded by toxic, dangerous relationships, domestic violence, uh, emotional, psychological abuse, betrayal, trauma, particularly in the faith community. Hmm. It's fascinating that someone can go through all that you've been through and actually find that is something that really just galvanizes your resolve to make a difference in people's lives and then actually see you out there doing that. I got refocused on some of the work you were doing because I was sitting in my office and I came across an article in a, a journal that comes my way and it's entitled When Abuse Doesn't Leave Bruises. And sure enough, I look down there, Sarah McDougall, and I say, wow, I haven't heard from Sarah in a long time. This was such a great topic. We need to get you on the radio show. What is all this about abuse not causing bruises? Well, traditionally, we think about abuse as, you know, if we, we think about domestic violence, we think, well, hey, at least I'm not in an abusive relationship, right? Because he hasn't hit me. Now, just one quick caveat. And I say this every time I have a public engagement like this of any kind, I fully recognize that there are men who have been abused. That exists. There are women who can be abusers, but I work specifically with women. So when I am speaking, I generally refer to her as the abuse survivor and him as the perpetrator of abuse, not because I'm ignorant, but it can be switched, but because abuse, especially domestic violence, is a heavily gendered situation. It, it just is. And I'll, I'll give you some statistics on that. But more than 80% of survivors of abuse are female. So I, I do want to throw it out there that if there are men listening and you're like, this applies to me, that is legitimate and valid. But I'm speaking as a woman who works with women. So coming back to your question, David, um, the what was your question? <laughs> I caveated myself well, well, right no, off onto a rabbit no, trail. No, but, but you did a great job. Your question. You did a great job because I'm glad you took time to to make this very important point about the non-gendered nature of the topic. Although there is this mm -hmm. gender predominance as far as who the victims yes. are, I so appreciate that. And and really, this is so appropriate because as we speak about men being abused. A lot of people say, well, hey, this guy couldn't be abused. I mean, he's a big guy. I mean, I never seen bruises right. on him. And that's my question, because you wrote this article when abuse doesn't cause bruises. And so the question right. is, well, why are we talking about that? Okay, well, thank you. Thank you for rerouting my train of thought right back into the station. So... <laughs> When abuse doesn't leave bruises helps to, it's a phrase that helps us to recognize that abuse is not nearly as limited as we have traditionally thought. And there is a lot of scientific study and research coming out in this area. It's an ever-growing field. It's certainly not one where we've tapped out all the resources and the studies that are available to be done. But when we look at abuse, there are 13 forms of domestic violence, and they all emanate from one core mindset. Only physical abuse leaves bruises. 
that would be visible on the outside, but they all emanate from one core mindset, and that is the abuse of power. So as we have grown to understand this more, we've come to recognize that sexual assault is not about sex. It's about power and entitlement. Physical assault is not about love or anger management. It's about power and entitlement, controlling finances, abusing children, intellectual put-downs, emotional and verbal abuse, using and leveraging one's culture and your norms to cause harm to someone else. All of these are rooted in the idea that I am entitled to take power over you and to remove your autonomy and your personhood. Now, Sarah, this, of course, resonates so very powerfully throughout Indian country. And I thought it was interesting that as you wrote about this topic, one of the very first things you mentioned was cultural abuse. So why does this enter into the equation so oftentimes? Well, you see, once we stop defining abuse as an event, that one time where he smacked me into a wall, let's say, once we stop defining abuse like that, and we start looking at the bigger picture, we recognize that abuse is actually a system. It is a system of power imbalance where those with the power do not use their power to to protect and to lift others up, but they use their power to exploit, to take advantage, and to crush others down. When we look at it that way, there is a tremendous cultural application among Native and Indigenous populations. I mean, that would be historical trauma in a nutshell right there. But then we also look at within marriages and homes. You see, everyone has power, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone has power. You have power as the husband and father in your home. True. But if you have a newborn child in your home, a newborn also has power. Mm -hmm. A newborn doesn't have the size or the strength or the articulate verbal power that you have as the parent. But a newborn's cry will get exhausted parents up every hour on the hour all night long. Mm -hmm. The newborn has power. Now, if the parents use their power to provide for the needs of that newborn child and to protect that child, then they are using their power well. If the parents use their power to exploit the child, to abuse the child, to neglect the child, They are abusive. And that child will grow up in a system of abuse. Hmm. Now, we can extrapolate out from that a recognition that when we have an abusive system, it isn't power that's bad. It's the entitlement to use my power for myself and to exploit others who are weaker or more vulnerable than me. So, Sarah, I don't know. Is it safe to say that at the root, then, of most abuse is a lack of respect, a lack of valuing at an equal level others around us? Yes, absolutely. And some are raised with a sense of entitlement Hmm. to power and control, while others are raised with a sense of lacking that. And very often, 
We find that from infancy and childhood ingrained in some rather than others. It is very often ingrained in men that they have the right to take, that sex is a need and they have the right to take their needs, to get their needs fulfilled, that power is their right, their birthright to control others, that that is what makes them strong and dominant and masculine. And we see this reinforced in Hollywood culture, in media culture, in local closed subcultures, and in faith cultures as well. Hmm. So, Sarah, as we're talking about this topic, it has far-reaching effects. And I think one of the things that has caused us uh, so much trauma, really, in the caring and ministry fields, whether you speak about physicians or counselors, is this scenario of seeing people that have been traumatized Mm -hmm. ending up ultimately being the perpetrators. So why is there this strange connection between some of those who've been the hurt worst by abuse, they end up becoming abusers themselves? You know, there is a lot of mixed data on that, actually. Uh, For example, I was just speaking with a sex therapist who has his PhD in sex addiction therapy and um, is a professor at Andrews University. And Dr. Hinman was telling me, because I was asking him more about this exact question, particularly in the area of sexual abuse. Um, And I was asking him, what does he see in his practice and his research? And, And actually, perpetrating sexual abuse is not, there is not a proven causality between experiencing sexual abuse as a young person or a child and becoming a perpetrator. In fact, in the book, Predators, Pedophiles, Sex Offenders, or Rapists and Other Sex Offenders by Anna C. Salter, which is a great book. I have links to it on my website in my, uh, my resource list. Um, But in the book Predators, Anna Salter says that a significant majority of those who are convicted sex offenders will claim that they were sexually abused in childhood and that that is why they act out. However, when they are faced with the opportunity to make that claim on a polygraph, the number of those who still claim to have been abused as children drops below 20%. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating. we got to talk more about this and other things. I know you've got a lot of practical things, but we do have to step away. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We've got some important announcements. They'll be coming up in just a moment. Sarah's not going away. Neither am I. Stay by. We'll be right back right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. For 13 and one half years, I was the victim of severe child abuse. I was being beaten, cursed, and deprived of any kind of love and care. It was a big secret. Children are born to be loved, not to be abused. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. 
go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. I'm Andrew Saul, Commissioner of Social Security. I'm here to warn you about telephone scammers pretending to be government employees. Some of these scammers may say threatening things like you will be arrested if you don't make payments or provide personal information. Do not fall for these tricks. These calls are not from us. Real Social Security employees will never threaten you for information or money. If you receive a call like this, hang up. Never give the caller your personal information, like your Social Security number or bank account, or send money in any form, cash, gift cards, wire transfers, or prepaid debit cards. Report the call to our law enforcement arm, the Office of the Inspector General at oig.ssa.gov. Share this information with your friends and family. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to today's edition of the broadcast. I'm Dr. David DeRose. My guest... Sarah McDougall. Sarah is speaking with us about the far-reaching tentacles of abuse. It enters into any serious discussion about historical trauma in Indian country. It uh, comes front and center in classrooms, in workplaces, and of course in homes. Sarah, before we dive into just helping us to really frame this maybe a little bit differently and, and look at some strategies that are really powerful, You've got a whole host of great resources for some that can't stay by for this whole power-packed lecture, presentation. You've got some information. Tell us how folks can tap into your resources. Absolutely. So online, I am very active on social media, especially on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, and so on. But you can find all of that from my one website, including the social links. And that is www.wildernesstowild.com. Now, let me explain where that comes from. Please, like, please. Yeah. Is this a hiking website? Like, why Wilderness to Wild? So when we are living in abuse, it feels like you're trapped in the fog. You're wandering in the desert. You're out in the wilderness. You feel isolated. You feel alone. You wonder if, if this is normal for anyone else. And when you begin to learn that these things you're experiencing actually have names, it's a thing. You're not alone. It feels like you're moving out of the wilderness and into the wild. So our, our work focuses on bringing survivors of trauma and abuse and domestic violence in the faith community out of that wilderness and into a wild, confident life. And by wild, I don't mean feral, like domestic gone wild. I mean wisdom, identity, legacy, and daring. The four things that are parts of healing 
How learning how to have wisdom. How do I make wise choices? Learning my identity. Who does God say that I am? Recognizing my legacy and understanding that I have things to leave behind, baggage to drop along the way and moving forward with daring. W-I-L-D. Where will I go from here? So those are the four pillars of healing after abuse and trauma that we use. And that's, that's our goal is to guide women out of the wilderness and into the wild. So www.wildernesstowild.com. So I'm trying to make sure I've fully wrapped my mind around this name. We've got the background, but the, the wild is also a mnemonic. It's a memory. Device. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And, and the W is wisdom. W is wisdom. The I is learning what? how, learning how to make wise choices after trauma. Okay. I stands for identity. Uh, recognizing who God says that I am. L is legacy, looking at my history and what I need to leave behind. So what baggage is in my history that I need to move on from? And daring is how do I move forward? What am I doing? Where am I going? I mean, this sounds like a great construct for where we're going. I know this is really practical stuff, but help us frame the discussion a little bit more because I know you've got some statistics that are pretty shocking mm-hmm. to a lot of people, I know, when they first hear them. Unnerving, yes. So a lot of times we just live like, I mean, hey, we, we each live our own life in our own little bubble. We may or may not realize we are living in abuse. We may feel like something is just off. But recognizing the actual statistics is powerful for starting to step into that wild freedom. Here's here's some numbers that might send chills down your spine. Domestic violence, and we're talking about all 13 forms, which we can dig into a little bit more, but we mentioned that in the last segment. Domestic violence is the second leading cause of death among African-American women. Wow. Domestic violence is the third leading cause of death among Native and Indigenous women. It's the seventh leading cause of death among Caucasian women. And research tells us that one in three women are sexually abused. One in six men are sexually abused. 82% of victims under 18 are female. 88% of child sexual abusers are male. Here's one that will blow your mind. Only six out of every 1,000 rapists spend even one day in jail. That, that, that's, yeah, that, that's sobering. Yeah. Only six out of every 1,000. And only 300 and something, about 364, I think, out of every 1,000 are actually reported. But only six out of all of those will even spend one day. That doesn't mean goes to prison for life, gets 20 years. That means even one night in jail. of child sexual abusers are known and trusted by the child. Mm. The whole 1980s stranger danger approach does not work. That is the smallest percentage of those who harm children. 34% of child sexual abuse victims are under age 12, often starting to be abused as young as age four. And here's the one that will curl your hair make it stand on end. Sexual abusers generally have between 50 and 150 victims before their first arrest and many more after. Wow. 
Yeah, I mean, that really causes you to, to pause because what you're doing is painting a picture, not you. I mean, the statistics are painting a picture a of, uh, I mean, I'd say a, a dangerous world. Is that uh, very, too strong to say? Very. No, I don't think so. I think that's I think that's a very fair statement. We live in a world where we would like to believe that everyone is good and people are safe, especially people at church. But data shows that those who are predators actually flock to places of faith because there is such a an increased expectation of trust, of second chances, of assuming the best, misapplied theologies of forgiveness, and these kind of things make faith communities, trusting communities, a feeding ground for those who want to cause harm and get away with it. Another thing is that closed cultures, small, tight-knit cultures or subcultures, are more prone to high abuse rates than the rest of the population because there is a lot of effort invested in keeping up appearances and handling things on the inside. So things don't get reported and people know it's not safe to speak out. This is uh, fascinating in light of a guest that we featured not all that long ago, a native Hawaiian woman from the island of Molokai, really sharing some of the very same dynamics that wow. you know, you're communicating, Sarah. So we know this is happening in tightly knit indigenous communities, as well as, as you mentioned, tightly knit religious communities, many of these places <laughs> that we look to and say, boy, this is a, is a great way to live, close relationships, right. people that know and right. understand you. So they've got all those amenities, but there's a lot of pitfalls uh, lurking in the shadows, huh? Absolutely. And that goes back to what we talked about in the last segment about the dynamics of abuse and power over. Seeing abuse as a system, not as an isolated event. Abuse is a collection of patterns of behavior where there is an imbalance of power and the person with the greater power does not use it for the good of those who are more vulnerable. So you have that dynamic present in tightly knit indigenous communities or tightly knit religious communities or tightly knit family communities or tightly knit space circles. Anything where it's like an us versus them, we are separate, is going to be more prone abusive dynamics inside the system if there is not a tremendous sense of of humility accountability service and giving in love while protecting the most vulnerable hmm. so I'm, I'm hearing some messages for those in leadership and i think that's an appropriate place to to focus at this juncture because we have tribal leaders listening, people that sit on, on tribal councils, tribal elders. We have folks who are not native in various leadership positions. I know there's a lot of Christian networks that carry our show. People that are leaders in faith communities, for example, are tuning in. So what is the message, first of all, uh, for individuals? They may not have ever thought of themselves as abusers. They haven't done anything physically traumatizing to people, but they're listening to what we're talking about and they're starting to ask a question, am I abusing other people in some ways? Am I at risk of abuse, uh, being an abuser, that is? What can we say to folks in those leadership roles? You know, I, 
That's a very nuanced question, Dr. DeRose, because I, I would say that it, the majority of the time, those who have power very rarely are asking themselves those questions because when we have great power, we are generally quite blind to it. However, if someone is incredibly self-aware and is recognizing these dynamics and you're listening to this right now, I would say that your first step is to begin to educate yourself about the dynamics of abuse. On my website, I have an advocacy resource list. It's a free giveaway and it's got 40 pages of links to the best books, apps, podcasts, YouTube channels, ways you can educate yourself in tremendous information that is quality, reliable information. Wow. This is tremendous stuff, Sarah. Before we have to step away again, give us your website and where specifically they can find this information. That is the first giveaway item at www.wildernesstowild.com slash giveaways. Okay, we've got it. Wildernesstowild.com slash giveaways. We are going to be back with more Sarah McDougall. She's got a lot more great things to say, a lot of great things that can help you if you find yourselves in challenging circumstances. I'm Dr. David DeRose. More right after this. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. The most negative thinking in my childhood was the things said to me. I felt like I was a bag of garbage waiting to go to the dump. Please, moms and dads, put a watch on your mouth as you relate to your children. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. Papa, why can't we telegraph while riding a horse? Son, there ain't no one to blame but Jeffro. He was riding old Betsy the Stallion, tip-tapping away at his telegraph, when blam, ran right into the side of the saloon. Well, if Jeffro can't do it, neither should you. Don't text and drive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hurd-Garris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Every year, hundreds of teens drown. If your teen hasn't learned to swim yet, it's never too late. Even if your teen is a strong swimmer, make sure to supervise kids of any age. No one should swim alone. Teach them to enter the water feet first, wear life jackets on a boat, and never use alcohol or drugs on the water. Drowning is preventable. For more, visit HealthyChildren.org. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for youth. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals into your body. And nicotine, which can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping. Because when you talk, they hear you. Learn more at underagedrinking.samsa.gov. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. 
Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to the second half of today's show. I am Dr. David DeRose. My guest, Sarah McDougall, popular author, speaker, someone who's empowering people to identify abuse and to do something about it. And Sarah, that's really where we want to go in this segment. We've been talking a lot about the spectrum of abuse, uh, just how far-reaching its effects are, how it is really part and parcel of indigenous people's lives in most places in the world because of the abuse of power of other cultural elements. Uh, We think of colonialism. We think of what some have called the invasion of America uh, with European contact here. And we get into this whole discussion of historical trauma. We've touched on some of that already. But let's come to this uh, this point, this really practical point of someone listening in today. They're saying, well, hey, how do I know? How do I know whether or not I actually myself personally am a victim of abuse? We're talking about not having bruises. I'm not bruised, but something doesn't seem right in my relationship. Help us uh, kind of walk through that whole that whole questioning process in someone's mind. Great. Yeah, this is such an important question to have tangible resources for. So first of all, I want to say that I have a systems of abuse chart that shows all 13 forms of domestic violence. And it's free for you to download on my website at wildernesstowild.com slash giveaways. Scroll down, systems of abuse chart. It's right there waiting for you as a free giveaway, gift from me to you. But I want to also, let's break this down a bit. More than just, okay, there's these 13 forms of domestic violence. What about, because we're talking about more than only the home, we're talking about abusive systems that include the home, but can also be cultural, religious, workplace, and these kind of things. So I want to give you four tools of abuse that are present in any abusive situation. And once you know these tools, you can begin to recognize that abuse is taking place regardless of the contextual environment. So these will help open your eyes to things you may have taken for granted as normal. I do want to give a shout out of credit to the organization Psalm 82 Initiative. They developed this four tools rubric and I use it with their permission. So the first tool is isolation. Hmm. The abuser fosters allegiance to themselves in a romantic relationship. It may be, maybe it's you and me against the world. You don't need your parents. You don't need your siblings. You don't need your friends. It's just you and me fostering this allegiance to yourself as the person with the power while excluding or diminishing other important relationships. We see this happen in faith communities. We see this isolation happen with cultural communities where there's a a chokehold from maybe the elders of the cultural community refusing to allow the younger people or anyone else to interact freely with outsiders. So the effect on the victim is that they begin to feel alone and rejected and quite helpless. There's no way that they can break out of this isolation because who would they tell? Who would you talk to about what's going on? If you're feeling that way, like there's this weird thing that's happening. There's this dynamic that isn't healthy. It's not okay. You don't feel safe, but you know better than to tell anyone. That is a red flag of an abusive environment. Mm. Number two, deflection. The abuser will seek to shift blame or deflect any negative attention away from themselves. So that means, here's what that can look like. Basically, 
anything I did, if I am the abuser in this scenario, is because of something else. Okay. It, it was the circumstances. It was the headache. It was because you didn't do the dishes the way I wanted. Mm. You made me do this. My boss made me do this. My anger problem made me do this. My childhood abuse history made me do this. Our, ki- our kid screaming for two hours made me do this. Whatever it is, I'm not taking responsibility for it. I'm saying that circumstances outside of me made me choose to act abusively. So if you imagine it as like this force field shield, like, like, like a shield in front of the abuser, they've got a force field that makes all the bad stuff bounce off of me and slide onto something or someone else. So if you're in a situation where you're feeling isolated and the person who has the power is always making everyone else take the blame for things and you end up apologizing after they're the ones who hurt you, mm-hmm. that's an abusive context. Mm. regardless of the location of that environment. Good point. So the victim begins to feel guilty and indignant, but also sympathetic. Like, this isn't fair. Why are you not taking responsibility? Why are you blaming me? I didn't do it. But also, oh, he can't help it. Mm. They can't, you know, somebody hurt them when they were kids. They can't help it. They're just repeating what they know. So that's the sympathetic excuses the victim Mm -hmm. makes Mm -hmm. for the abuser. Number three. So we have isolation, we have deflection, and we have manipulation. Now, this is kind of the same thing as deflection, but in reverse. Mm-hmm. Imagine that force field shield that they're holding up that allowed everything, all the bad stuff to bounce off or slide off onto someone else. Now imagine that that shield is a magnetic shield. All the good stuff comes to me. All the all the praise, all the credit for this group project, all the the glossy public image for my perfect family, even though it's hell behind closed doors at home, it's all about how I look. It's all the good stuff is bolstering my public image as the abuser. And as a result, the victim is trapped into doing what the abuser wants in order to not spoil the public image. Hmm. So if we have to do this to make sure the tribe looks good, We have to sacrifice the one in order, even though something has been criminally done wrong to you. We don't want anyone to find out because it'll make us look bad. That is an abuse tactic. And that can happen in culture, church, family, you name it. This makes the victim feel confused and cornered and like, am I crazy? What's wrong with me? I see these things happening, but I don't think I'm crazy, but they're telling me I'm crazy. So isolation, deflection, manipulation, and the fourth and last one is intimidation. Hmm. So intimidation is where the abuser employs threats or actions, which can also be the absence of action, in order to get, to get compliance. So, for example, you may have a spouse, a wife, and children who say, oh, but my husband's never been intimidating. He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't beat us. But then I would ask, does he go silent for days on end if he doesn't get his way? So then you tiptoe around to make sure that everything is just like he likes it to avoid the silent treatment. That's still intimidation Hmm. because it results in the absence of healthy affection, healthy communication. It's still a way to get compliance from you 
by manipulating the situation. So those four things, isolation, deflection, manipulation, intimidation, if those are present or several of them are present in any context, you are, you are functioning inside an abusive system. And I guess, I mean, as, as powerful as this stuff is, I mean, some folks right now are connecting the dots, Sarah, and they're saying, hey, I mean, it's all applying where I'm at. I mean, there's isolation, there's the deflection, there's the manipulation, the intimidation. I mean, the biggest question then is once someone names it, I'm an abusive, I'm in an abusive relationship, then the next question is, well, what can I do about it? And I know we may not be ready to go there just yet, but I know that's the question on a lot of people's minds. Absolutely. Well, I want to give you four more tools first, okay? because these first four are the beginnings of opening your eyes. But in order for this abusive context to work, there are four relational elements. And these have to also be present. There's one, three of them are the abusers, one is the survivors, Mm -hmm. and you can completely change the game if you remove your participation in this relational element. Okay, you've, so got, our, you yeah, you've got our interest. All right. So go for it, Sarah. These four. So the very first one, the abusive relational element is entitlement. The abuser feels that they are entitled to isolate, deflect, manipulate, intimidate. It's their right. Whether that is a gender birthright, whether that is a role or status birthright, whether that's coming because of power or wealth or, or position, it doesn't matter. They believe that they have the right to do these things. And so that is their their idea of privilege. Their benefit is the privilege that comes with it. And the victim has the painful experience of injustice and unfairness. Mm. It's just not fair. The second abusive relational element is control. And so when entitlement and control intersect, um, we have this the, the, the primary benefit for the abuser is that they have security. Their privilege is secure hmm. because nobody's going to, to stand up against them on this. And the victim's experience is that of one of insecurity and fear. Mm-hmm. When entitlement and control work together, it creates the third relational element, and that is coercion. Hmm. The right to control someone else results in forcing them, Right. Mm-hmm. So the, the benefit to the abuser is that they feel that they can take power over. And at that point, the victim feels oppressed mm-hmm. and they experience that sense of oppression They're It's unjust. It's unfair. They're insecure. They're scared. And now they are oppressed once it's become forceful and coercive. Here's number four. And every abusive relational system also requires this fourth one. And that is one we don't often think of. It is compliance Hmm. from the victim. When the victim gives compliance, the benefit to the abuser is victory. Mm -hmm. They have won. And an abusive mindset, those who are abusers have a, they they think of it as a zero sum game. If you win, I lose. There is no way that we all can work together together everyone's benefit. So it's very dichotomous, black and white thinking on the abuser's part. Mm -hmm. So they get victory when you comply. And the victim's painful experience in that situation is defeat. It's just, why even fight? I'm just going to comply. It's easier not to fight. Where the victim can change the game 
is by taking away the compliance. Hmm. When you stop complying with the abusive system, it changes the balance. No. It shifts the dynamics. And that's where it can also get very, very dangerous. Mm-hmm. So I know yeah. before we're done with this episode, we need to talk about safety because I cannot just throw that out there and be like, hey, stop complying. And then you get people ending up dead. And I think this is the other big challenge with all this, Sarah, just to be honest, if we're going to talk about this in a, a public discourse like this, is the downside is often when people hear about that compliance element, it's something internally people are quick to label the abusers as being somehow complicit in the, that, well, this wouldn't have happened if they had not done X, Oh, you y, mean the Z. victim? Yes. If the victim is complicit, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I am not saying that any victim is responsible for their abuse. There is only one cause of abusing someone else, and that is the abuser choosing to act abusively. Mm-hmm. But the abuse continues and is enabled when the victim provides compliance in the system. We have to build on this and we do have to step away, but uh, this is such an important topic. I hope you got that message. We're not talking to any of you if you've been abused. We're not trying to blame the victim. That's the last thing we want to do. Absolutely not. But at the same time, we want to help you realize that even if you're being victimized, there are things you can do. That's where we're headed in our final segment on today's show. I'm Dr. David DeRose. There's a lot more that you can tap into from Sarah McDougall. We're going to give you her website and other information when we come right back. Stay tuned. Some very, very important stuff. Don't go away. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. If child abuse victims don't get counseling or help, they so often become abusers themselves. The victim doesn't make the decisions, they just take the orders. I got help, and so can you. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Shelley Flace with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. If you own firearms, it's your responsibility to make sure they're always stored safely. Hiding them in a closet or drawer is not enough. Kids know where they are. Research shows the risk of injury and death is lower if guns are stored unloaded and locked up with the ammunition locked in a separate place. This is important when children are young as well as when they grow into teenagers. For more, talk with your pediatrician or visit HealthyChildren.org. So I wanted to talk with you and your mom today, Lily, because some people at school have noticed changes going on with you, and we're concerned. Like what? Who? Some of your friends, teachers. Sounds like you've lost interest in a lot of things lately. You're hanging with new friends? So? So, individually, maybe those things are no big deal, but taken together, and then the incident the other day, you were with Derek when he was caught selling marijuana. Yeah, he was selling it. Honey, we know. But we care about you and and want to know what's going on. That's right. We just want to understand better and see how we might help. And if weed is a part of it, we just want to make sure you understand the negative consequences for someone your age. The physical and mental health effects, poor decision making, and the confusing legal aspects these days. So what do you say? 
Can we talk? For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to our final segment of today's edition of the broadcast. I'm Dr. David DeRose with Sarah McDougall. We have been speaking about abuse. We've been trying to put tools in your hands to not only identify abuse and some of its, uh, well, less obvious manifestations, but we're also trying to give you some support and help. Sarah, you've got a whole host of great resources on your website. For those who may be just joining us, tell us how they can access those resources. Absolutely. So my website is www.wildernesstowild, three words all together, dot com, wildernesstowild.com. If you go to giveaways there, I have lots of free resources, downloads, charts, infographics, ebooks, you name it, they're there. I also have things like quizzes. Is my husband a porn addict? Hmm. That is something you're wondering. I have a parenting through trauma resource list a survivor and advocacy best books recommended list. I have um, a betrayal trauma resource list with all the best resources for those who have just discovered infidelity or sex addiction um, in their spouse. There's coaching, there's online courses and workshops. There's how to plan events or crisis consults, you name it. We've got it as well as links to all the books. Wow. So a lot of great stuff, all at Wilderness, Wilderness Wilderness 2, T-O, the word T-O. Yes. Wild. Dot com. Dot com. I got it. Wilderness to Wild. Sarah, we've told people that there's things they can look for, they can identify Mm -hmm. as far as whether they're in an abusive relationship. Maybe they've never been hit. They've never been in a chokehold, but they're suspicious. Uh, in fact, they know something's not right. They've wondered if it's right. all in their head. You've walked us through some of these tools of abusers and people have made those identifications, some of them. How do they get out of the situation? Because we've said not to comply with an abuser can be dangerous business, right? Right. Absolutely. It can be life-threatening. So when you begin to realize that you're in an abusive relationship, first of all, the, the very first step is to recognize that even though you may not have a split lip or bruises, non-physical domestic violence is actually still abuse. Hmm. Living in an abusive context in this abusive relational system is far more damaging than we typically realize. And it requires compliance. This is not blame. This is not shame. But it only works if the victim is complying with it. So if you choose to end your compliance, then you may be facing a very dangerous situation. Let me tell you a story. So um, I know of a woman who recently, um, her husband just moved out and she's contemplating uh, filing for divorce. And she's a very devout person. She's someone who comes from a pretty closed, tightly knit community, um, both um, ethnically and religiously. So that's kind of a double whammy. And so she's always grown up and and she's now mature and she has children. She's not super young and naive. She's, she's always grown up believing that you cannot leave 
you cannot leave your marriage. I mean, you marry is for life, right? And so she has wrestled and struggled with how do I reconcile all of these difficult things? And for years, she had no idea that what she was living with was actually abuse because Mm. the psychological, the emotional, the financial forcefulness, the coercion, the control, the spiritual abuse, the verbal put downs, the harsh words, all of this was creating a situation where her daily life was actually tearing her body apart. Mm -hmm. So over time, she began losing the ability to sleep. Interestingly, she had gut issues, intestinal issues, and and even incredibly personal things that happened to a majority of women living in an abusive environment. Things like having difficulty eliminating or using the toilet properly, Mm. either having constipation or explosive diarrhea when you're not actually sick. These kind of things, intestinal issues, are closely linked in the gut-brain connection with living in an abusive environment. So women like this end up having insomnia, having autoimmune issues, having unexplained cancers, having unexplained trauma situations or trauma reactions, feeling confused and forgetful and being like, I know I'm a competent woman. My mind used to be so sharp. Why can't I remember anything? Feeling that everything is their fault, that Mm -hmm. they are the cause of everything and their body starts to break down. So you may not have bruises, but non-physical abuse is still physical abuse of the brain and organ tissues. There is still a toll taken on the body from trauma. Mm. Now, if you're listening to this and you're like, I'm the woman in that story, that's me. Maybe you grew up, your whole childhood was filled with adverse childhood experiences or ACEs as we call them where this has been your reality forever. Maybe you had a great family, but then you married someone and you you didn't want to come home or your, your stomach would sink when you hear the door open and he's home from work. If that is you, you are living in an abusive environment. Sarah, I mean, this is so poignant for so many people. I mean, you're, you're pointing this out and I'm looking at this reality, not only of abuse, but also of a clock that is letting us know that if we don't give people... <laughs> All the, the tools that we can, we're going to be out of time. So help us, I help hate us here. Clocks. All right. So if this is you, I want you to be not you, David, but That's you, okay. our listener. If this is you and you're listening right now and you're saying, I need to do something, I've got to change my level of compliance. I want you to recognize that the most dangerous time for a woman who is leaving an abusive situation is when she decides to leave mm-hmm. and shortly thereafter. If There are extra things like there's a firearm in the home. That's 500% more likely that you will be harmed or killed by your abuser. If he has ever put his hands around your neck, even lightly, not leaving bruises, but in a choking motion, you are 750 to 800% more likely to be a victim of homicide by that person. So if you have these kind of things going on, you need to call the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Mm. You need expert professional help with safety planning, you need to start quietly finding out where your local domestic violence shelter is. You need to talk to safe, trusted people outside of your circle of friends that might let it leak. Mm. The National Domestic Violence Hotline can be found at www.thehotline.org. Very simple, straightforward. And 
you can call the 800 number at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. If you recognize yourself in these stories, do not try to, to be a hero and do it all by yourself. You need help so you can stay safe. Let me make sure that I've got this here. It's 1-800-799 and then the word SAFE. Yes. Okay. That's the National Domestic Hotline violence for Violence. Hotline. Okay. And, yes. And, and absolutely. It's thehotline.org? Yes. www.thehotline.org. Okay. Very good. Either one of those. So making a plan is critical, getting professional Absolutely. help. Any other yes. special pointers if someone realizes they're caught in this web of abuse and just trying to extricate themselves? Yes, absolutely. So you continue, you need to continue educating yourself. You can do that through things like the resources on my website, wildernesstowild.com. That's www.wildernesstowild, T-O, not the number two, dot com. And I have a ton of advocacy and survivor resources, suggested books and so on there. You can ask to get into one of my online Facebook support groups. I'm very active on Facebook. You can start following my Facebook page at Sarah McDougall Author. And on the wildernesstowild.com website, if you click on groups, there are links to all of my private closed Facebook support groups. If you have just found out that your spouse is a porn addict or is watching porn or has been cheating in some way, BTR. That's Betrayal Trauma Recovery, BTR.org, is a fantastic crisis line with round-the-clock coaching and crisis support if you've just had this disclosure of sexual infidelity or porn addiction in your marriage. And on my website, under giveaways, I've got a quiz, an online quiz you can take. Is my husband a porn addict or a sex addict? So there are tons of resources. You are not alone. That is the most important thing. You are not alone, and there are safe ways for you to find freedom and safety. Sarah, these are such important messages and so timely, not uh, just for any single ethnic group or single group of people. As you pointed out at the very beginning of the show, both genders can be affected by this. It crosses international lines, crosses spiritual lines. Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you. We've got to step away. Again, if you want more information, you can get in touch with Sarah McDougall simply by going to wildernesstowild.com. That's wildernesstowild.com. Single best point of reference. If you're listening to this on a radio show, check with the station that's airing it. They get uh, information. At least all the networks get information about how to contact our guests. Or uh, come to our website, American Indian Alaska Native Living. It's A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. You can listen to podcasts and get additional information about the shows right there. Well, for all of us at American Indian and Alaska Native Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose, as always, wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.